We'll open your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. We come this morning to, uh, to one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. In fact, it has a name for itself. I'm not sure if you know what the name of this passage is. Do you know? Hebrews 6 is the name of the passage. I was uh, talking to a friend of mine recently. The topic came up. I was preaching through Hebrews. And uh, he got kind of a startled, excited look on his face. He said, oh, have you preached Hebrews 6 yet? And uh, this was several months ago, and I said no. And he, he knew the controversy surrounding these verses and was curious to know how I would handle them. That was several months ago. Well, today I'm finally preaching Hebrews 6. I want to read the passage. Hebrews 6, technically is Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, is the, the verses that they speak about. We're going to go through verse 12 today, and there's a reason for that. I trust you'll see the wisdom of that as we we get through it. Um, Also, at the end of the message today, we will be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, so you can prepare your hearts for that as well. It's a great passage, leads right into that, so we can rejoice. Hebrews 6, verse 4, the writer says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the Word of God, the good Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now the big debate in these verses has to do with the nature of the Gospel. When someone comes to faith in Christ, can they lose their salvation? Or will God keep them until the end? Are we secure in the arms of God, or will we not know until the final day whether we have made it or not? Perhaps you know some people who have walked with the Lord for some time, but now they are not. At one time they seemed so fired up about Jesus, and yet their state today is that they are far from Him. How many of you know people like this? Okay, almost every hand in the room. The older you get, the more you'll, you'll know people like this. When I, I think about this, names and faces flood my mind. Maybe names and faces are flooding your mind as well. And thinking about them really challenges my mind and the reality of their faith. What happened to these people? Did they lose their faith? Did they lose their salvation? Or was it that they never really had it in the first place? 
These are the sort of questions that Hebrews 6 begins to answer for us. Now, there are some who take these verses as the, uh, the, the stalwart, the, the big verses that say that you can lose your salvation. Look right here in Hebrews chapter 6. And there are others who read these verses and say, no, you, you can't lose your salvation. But here's, here's, here's something to start off with, though. Regardless of how you take these verses, whether you can lose your salvation or not, the main message of the text comes loud and clear through to us. Let's not miss the forest for the sake of the trees. The message here is don't fall away. Don't fall away. This is because the state of those who fall away is not good. And so for all of us, the call is that we might not be one of those who fall away. That is the title of my message this morning, Don't Fall Away. See, because everyone believes you can fall away. Whether you fall away from salvation or whether you fall away from a professing faith, that's the big question. But in either case, the results are tragic. We ought to pray the Lord and seek the Lord that such things will never happen to us. In fact, I want to take a moment before I get into my first point to pray. Lord, these are are sobering words for us this morning. They are words of... um, of terror, really. Speak about someone who's come so close to Jesus, have experienced so much of you, and then have fallen away. Their, their hope is gone. And I pray for us this morning, Lord, that you would cause us to feel the weight this passage on our own souls. I pray that you would protect us and you would be the one to, to keep us. In fact, indeed, it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, if God permits... And I pray that you would permit us to press on until that day. Protect us and guide us and guard us. May Romans 8 be our ballast. May other passages of Scripture we know. Just may we trust in you. May you sustain us until that final day. So help us now as we look and think about these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, my first point this morning is simply this. warning. It's the warning. This is one we are find ourselves in one of the warning passages of Hebrews. You remember how many warning passages there are in Hebrews? Five warning passages. We've dealt with the first two. The first one's in chapter two, don't drift. The second one was in chapter three, beginning in verse seven, almost through the end of chapter four, and the warning there was don't harden your hearts. And now here it comes, don't fall away. The writer here in verses 4-6 through six is describing a very specific group of people. Six things are true about these people. They've been enlightened. Verse 4, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Verse 4, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, they have tasted the good Word of God. Verse 5, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. Verse 5, and finally then in verse 6, they have fallen away. All these things are true of these people. And for these people, as it says in verse 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. In other words, for these people, their hope is lost. No longer do they have an opportunity to know the grace of God. And, and the reason simple is because they've come so close, they've experienced so much, and then they've turned and rejected it all, and God is done with them. That's why they don't have any chance left. God is done with them. Now, you might be thinking about this. Well, that, that sounds pretty harsh, Steve. Sounds pretty ungodlike. Well, you need to realize this is throughout all Scripture. There are people like this. Think about Israel. I'll give you two examples. Think about people in Israel. They saw the ten plagues 
around them. And we could go into those. I've done that before in the past. They are amazing at what takes place in the plagues. The power of God to stop and start and to discern. It's amazing. And then they saw a pillar of cloud and fire protect them from the Egyptians who were pursuing them. And they saw the Red Sea split in two so they could walk across on dry land. And they saw just by a stick being thrown into water, the, the bitter waters being made sweet. And they, they saw this fine, flake-like substance. What is it they called it? Manna coming down from heaven that fed perhaps even up to a million people, maybe two million people coming out. Every day this manna fed them. They saw water come out of the rock to... to to supply the water needs for millions. And then when on the precipice of the promised land God told them to take, they said, we're not going to believe in God. We're not going to believe. God may have told us to take this land, but they're too big for our God. God said, what are you talking about? I put out these plagues. I give you water. I provide food for you. And God says, alright, I'm done with these people. His words in Numbers 14 go like this, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days. For every day you will bear your guilt a year, even 40 years you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, destroyed and there they will die. God was done with them. They had rebelled too long. Still, they maintained their rebellion and unbelief. God had tolerated the rebellion long enough. He said they're going to die in the wilderness, and die they did. Once that pronouncement was made, there was no turning back. That's what God is like. Similar to what Jesus experienced with the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw much of the miracles of Jesus. They saw with their own eyes. They saw Jesus cleanse a leper. And He went and reported to the priest. They saw this. They saw Jesus heal the centurion's servant. Sick. Up, raised, just fine. They, they saw Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law. She was feverish and Jesus touched him and up and then she served them and helped them. Saw Jesus cast the demons out of this, the Gadarene demoniacs, what they heard about across the sea. They'd seen Jesus heal a paralytic right before their eyes. You remember when the paralytic was brought down from the roof and it came right in front of them? He said, your sins are forgiven. They said, who can he forgive sins? Okay, which is more difficult, to forgive sins or to raise him from, from walking, allow him to walk? And they obviously knew it's easier just to say something, but to do something. He healed the paralytic, he got up, and he walked right out of their midst. They saw Jesus heal a woman who had had a health problem, hemorrhaging, bleeding for 12 years. Instantly. Saw raise a child from the dead. They saw the blind receive their sight. They saw the dumb speak. They saw Jesus cast demons out of people. And what did these Pharisees who rubbed so close to Jesus say? When the crowds were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, the crowds were amazed. The Pharisees said, oh, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. He's demon-possessed. When all the crowds were amazed, saying, This cannot be the son of David, can he? The Pharisees said, This man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. At that point, Jesus then pronounced this unpardonable sin. He said, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. House divided itself against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And then he concludes by saying this, You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, even in this age or in the age to come. In other words, they were so close to Jesus, see all the miracles He did, and they they said, that's Satan working. And Jesus said, that's too much. Your sin will never be forgiven. There's no chance for repentance with you. And there are other instances in Scripture as well when, when God deals with rebellion, and, and He is long-suffering, but there reaches a point, He doesn't snap, but He says, you've had enough, you've seen enough, you should know and believe, but this time, your hope is lost. And the principle is this, when you get close and see Jesus and His works, and then turn your back upon them and repudiate them, your hope is gone. That's what we see here in Hebrews 6. We see people getting close to the people of God. They are hearing the Gospel and understanding it. They are witnessing the blessings of those who walk with God. They are sharing in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. They are discovering treasures in the Word of God. They are experiencing the miracles taking place among God's people. And then they reject it all. That's what's happening here. And for such people, we see that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Here's the reason why. Verse 6, Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. In other words, the falling away of this context isn't really indifference. It's not like, oh, you can have your church thing. I'm going to go over here and do my thing. It's, it's not really confusion. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really sure about this. It isn't really even a lapse into sin. It's not some moral failure. Now, those things may be included in it. It it may be a step away into indifference. There may be confusion. There may be moral failure definitely along the line. But at some point, they deny Jesus. Right? They crucify Him again. It's almost as if they say, oh, the crucifixion of Jesus. No, He should have died. He's up there upon the cross. He's not a worthy Savior. And these people fall away to the point that they hate Jesus. And they put Him to open shame. They put Him to open shame because they were within the church. And they saw the great God, the blessings that God had, and they said, no, it's not good enough, and turned away. It's like they're turning their back on God, and God won't allow His name to be polluted in that way. He won't tolerate open-handed rebellion to those who have seen so much. He will leave them lost in their sin. They're a bit like those who Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1, who see the creation and know the eternal power and divine nature of God, and yet... Because of the sin in their hearts, they suppress the truth, believe a lie, and follow after their own lusts. And it's for those sorts of people that God gives them over to their own passions. Romans 1.28 Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them time, He gave them revelation, He gave them the stars, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, He gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Perhaps this is a reason why many who are old don't come to Christ because God's given them over to the lust. He's revealed Himself plenty to them and just follow after their own case. Well, that's the case we see here in Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Not so much, listen to this, because God can't restore them, but because God won't restore them. They've come too far. They've seen too much. They've rejected it all. Thereby they have insulted God. They've put Him to open shame. And God won't have it. Now let me remind you the context of these verses. It comes from verse 3. 
And this we will do, the writer says, what? We will press on to maturity if God permits. And then in verse 4, he shows an instance where God doesn't permit spiritual maturity to take place. He doesn't permit a returning to Him to take place. He doesn't permit a sinner to come to Him. Rather, He lets them go their own way. At this point, having felt the weight of that, I need to tip my hand to show that I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe these verses here are teaching that you can lose your salvation. There's overwhelming testimony of Scripture that speaks of the security of the believer. We read from Romans chapter 8 today. There's a reason for that. That God who called us from eternity past, knew us, predestined us, has called us in time. He's justified us and will glorify us. That is God's plan. It's links on a chain. It's not indefinite. It's those whom He foreknew. When he, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. It is God. And Paul says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that, well, now you're no condemnation, but now you've lost your salvation. Now there is condemnation, and now you go back and forth. It's not that. The Scripture speaks about 1 Peter 1.5, about God's protection through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed the last time. God protects us and guides us. God, Jude 24 is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Jesus said to the people, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. All the Father gives Me will come to Me, and the one who comes to Me I will certainly not cast out. John 10, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Even we see some passages from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There these are called who may receive the promise. It says in Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's, it's one offering He perfects for all time those who are sanctified. And even in the following verses from our text, Hebrews 6 verse 13 speaks about the promise of God and how sure it is. Like verse 14 to Abraham, I, God, will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will surely multiply you. Here is a promise that God made. And then in this whole text, in Hebrews chapter 6, He contrasts between the promises of man and the promise of God. The promises of God are sure. Verse 17, In the same way God, desiring even more to show the unchangeableness, to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible to, for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. It's like that's where our hope is and God has promised. We hope on that and He brings us right into heaven. It's the whole thrust of the rest of Hebrews chapter 6. Now, many still say, that verses 4 through 6 describe the saved individual. I was talking on the phone this week with someone who uh, 
pretty knowledge doesn't go to church here, but it's very knowledgeable about the Bible. He's a good friend of mine. Just talked with him, and he said, you know, Steve, I think that verses four through six are describing a believer. I'm like, okay, um, I don't, but he does. But let me tell you why I don't. And most of my reasons even come contextually right here. First of all, in this list of things you see four through six, you don't see the typical words that imply salvation. There aren't words here like redeemed or regenerated or new birth or given life in Christ or justification or being made righteous or holy or experiencing forgiveness or experiencing the grace of God. There's, there's nothing of that typical sort of anything that would indicate salvation here. There are different images used, which, which may speak of salvation. Furthermore, you see nothing of the fruit of the people's lives here. Nowhere do you see people believe. There's nothing about faith. You don't see anything about love. You don't see anything about them loving God or loving people. And in fact, you can argue that, the, that, that those types of things, faith and belief and love to God, were absent from these people. And I say that because in verses 7 through 8, there's an illustration given. And we'll get to that. But the illustration here is, is an illustration of rain-soaked ground. That, that ground that has every opportunity to grow, and it brings forth no fruit. Rather, it brings forth thorns and thistles. And the obvious application here is, is clear. Those in verses 4 through 6 are like the rain-soaked ground that has only brought forth thorns and thistles, that has brought forth no fruit. I think it's obvious that these people here, though experiencing much about God, brought no fruit forth in their lives because that's the illustration he uses to tell us and describe us, to clarify to us what he just taught. They'll be cursed, they'll be burned, their fate is sealed. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. There's no fruit. They weren't real. Oh, to be sure, they experienced great blessings. They experienced great closeness to Jesus. But they didn't. And, and furthermore, notice here in verse 9 when he speaks of how the original re- readers of the letter were not like this. He says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Notice the change in pronoun. In verses 4 through 6, it's about those people. In fact, this is the first time he really speaks about the third person. This is, this is about those people out there. They used to be among us, but they're out there. They've once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and so on. But, beloved, you in contrast are different. Here, verse 9. We're convinced that you are saved. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Right? The implication here is that they didn't have things that accompany salvation, but you do have things that accompany salvation. And what accompanies salvation? That's fruit. And he begins to speak about the fruit. God is not unjust, verse 10, so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints, right? You have a work that is, has worked out where His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before, and they were working. And they were showing their love to God by ministering to people. And that ministry was continuing to go on. They had a hope in God, verse 11. They were those who had faith in the promises, in verse 12. And He says, you're different than these people because you have a love and a faith and a hope that these people don't have. And I think that the verses surrounding the context just give great weight on the description of how verses 4 through 6 need to be taken. I think that they need to be taken of non-believers who come close to Jesus, begin to taste what salvation is like, begin to catch the overflow from others, 
being attracted to him, hearing of him, coming to church, experiencing the blessings, but never really embracing everything, and then turning aside and falling away. Oh, they were close, but they abandoned it all. And in their very abandoning it, that's what God says, there's no hope for you. Now notice here, he's not talking about a rank pagan who's never experienced or touched church at all. That's a far different story. He's not talking about someone whose heart has been hard his whole time. He's talking about someone who's, who's beginning to soften and beginning to see what, what God is all about and then basically sees God and says, nah. It's totally different than the one who has no clue about God at all. The sinners and the tax collectors, if you will. God treats them so differently. Opportunities abound. But these people, in abandoning it all, were like those of 1 John 2.9. They went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. And I think that's here, that they, these people went out of the church, gone, because they were not of us. They were never a part of the church, never a believing member. Thus they left, never to return again. Well, at this point, you, I think the question rightly comes, Steve, how do you take these six statements? Well, let me explain them, how I take them to show that these people come close, but not all the way. The first point here is that they've been enlightened. As the light of the Gospel had shone on them, something took place in their mind. They came to see Jesus in a different light than ever before. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, this term is used to denote the beginning of salvation. Remember when you were enlightened, right? Remember when it first dawned on you (coughs) that this Jesus really was the Messiah. But I don't think that this in any way implies that they were fully believers. It just means that they had come to see Jesus as a Messiah. That's why they were in the church. Because they said, oh, could this be? Is it? I think it is. I think this Jesus is our Messiah. I think they're fickle like the people who are worshiping at the Palm Sunday coming down. And then they were saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. That's exactly the people described here. They were enlightened to see that this is the King coming on a donkey. But later they would deny Him. And this word, fotizo, to lighten, you know, is, is used several often in the Scripture like this. The prophecy of Isaiah said of Jesus, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. It doesn't mean that everyone upon whom the light of Jesus shined became believers. No, it just means that they were enlightened, that the light shined upon them. The beginning of John's Gospel, we read that Jesus was the true light which coming to the world enlightens every man. Not that every man was saved or simply means that people came to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw it. It dawned upon them, enlightened this knowledge, but they didn't embrace Him. That's what this verse is talking about. Second, these people had tasted the heavenly gift. (coughs) There's debate here about what the heavenly gift is. Probably not the Holy Spirit because He's mentioned in in the third phrase. It may be Christ who Paul describes as the indescribable gift. It may be salvation as is described in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But whatever it is, it denotes the kindness of God, which is the point, right? A gift is something which God, which God gives and grants, speaks about His grace. And they have just begun to taste His grace. Taste the kindness of God in some way. Taste Jesus, is what they did. Or tasted a bit of what salvation is like, because salvation was all around them. They saw lots of people who were saved. And I take great weight in this word here, tasted which, by the way, governs three of these six phrases. Here it says that they tasted. They didn't swallow the heavenly gift. They didn't 
devour the heavenly gift. They merely tasted it. It doesn't say at all that they, they had the heavenly gift. It doesn't say that they held on to the heavenly gift. It says that they just, they just tasted it. Think about when you go to uh, Baskin-Robbins, right? BR31. And uh, you see a flavor there you've never experienced before. You, you, look, you look in behind the, the glass there and it's super fudged truffle. And you're saying, hmm, that looks really good. And you say it really loud. That looks really good. Mm, I wonder what that tastes like. Hoping that the lady behind the counter, the teenage boy or whatever, is going to say, oh, I have a little pink spoon here for you. Would you like a little taste? And you say, oh, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> You're feigning ignorance, right? And they, they take the, this, this uh, fudge truffle, right? Super fudge truffle. And they scoop it up and they give it to you. And you just kind of taste it. Not enough to fully satisfy you, but just enough to see what it's like. I think that's thrust of the passage here. They've just begun to taste the kindness of God. But Jesus said, you need to eat. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Salvation is eating and drinking Christ. It's getting the whole scoop. It's not just a little taste. I mean, Isn't that what Hebrews has been teaching us about? It's all in for Jesus. That's what salvation is about. It's not just dabbling. And these people here were waffling. They were, well, maybe Jesus, maybe not. Because they're tasting and they're just seeing. Well, third phrase, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) This phrase can easily be translated as it does in the ESV and the NIV. They're shared in the Holy Spirit. And I think that carries the idea of the phrase, being in the church and around the people of God with many blessings, thereby they share in the Spirit. Because one of the things about the Spirit is if it indwells each of us, the Spirit overflows and we, we, we taste of His kindness as it, it, it bubbles over, right? Rock Valley Bible Church ought to be filled with the Spirit of God as it just overflows each of us who are filled with it. And we, a non-believer can come in here and share in the Spirit and see how the Spirit is in you and it's in you and it's in you and it's in you and they, they see that and anyone in church just gets surrounded by this and becomes taken up in it in some measure. In a very real way, they share the Spirit with others. And there's even a sanctifying effect that that might have upon somebody. Even in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when it speaks about an unbeliever living with a, a believer, it just speaks about how they are sanctified by the unbelieving one. I mean, how, how can an unbeliever be sanctified? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit within them bubbles up and bubbles over and helps and cleanses and purifies people in some way. And I think that's what's being talked about here. Sharing in the Spirit. Fourth, these people have tasted the good Word of God. Again, we see that word tasted, and again, I'm going to argue that it just means they've kind of dabbled in it just a bit. It indicates that they were surrounded by the covenant community. They're going to church each Sunday morning, hearing the Word of God proclaimed talking with others in the church and they're talking about the Bible, they're talking about God's Word, how God is speaking to them and talking with them and, and they're reading from it where they are. And if possible, if they had a set of Scriptures, if they were wealthy enough to do that, they perhaps were reading on their own. Maybe they went to the synagogue where the scrolls were kept and they went and they read there and they tasted the good Word of God and they liked it. You need to know that listening to good preaching isn't any sign of special spirituality. George Whitfield is a case in point. He was a great evangelist in the 1700s. And um, everywhere he preached, countless multitudes would come and hear him gladly. One of his biggest fans was Benjamin Franklin. 
by no means a Bible-believing Christian. A deist at best. A sinner for sure. David Hume, Scottish atheistic skeptic, would race off at five in the morning to hear Whitfield preach. And someone asked him one time, David Hume, he said, why, why do you go? Do you believe what Whitfield's saying? He says, no, I don't believe it, but he does. And there's something attractive even to those in the world when a gifted preacher stands up and puts forth the Word of God with passion and clarity, believing it to be true, even non-safe people will come and listen to that. It's the attraction of preaching. It can catch the minds of the unsaved. King Herod is an example of that. King Herod used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, verse 20. And Herod was far from a godly man. He had divorced his wife un- unlawfully. He was being entertained by sensuality at his feast and he ordered at the moment John the Baptist's head cut off, though with grief, surely. But he loved his preaching. And there are many who will hear the word gladly even if they aren't believing in Christ. And I think that's the case of these identified in verse 5. They, they've just tasted the Word of God. They, they've tasted its goodness and they've kind of liked it even. They're close to Christ. Also, here, he tasted the powers of the age to come. Again, that verb tasted comes from the, the previous phrase there. Tasted the good Word of God. Verse 5, tasted the powers of the age to come. I think it has reference to tasting of God's working in the church. Think about what they had tasted. They had tasted God answering prayer. Because God answers our prayers. They had tasted how God provides resources for the one out of work, for the one who had a catastrophe, one whose house burned down. God then just provide resources all the way. They tasted of God's power in that. They, they tasted how God heals the sick. This day and age, certainly they tasted of the miraculous too, people being healed, that they had no explanation for it all except the power of God. They tasted how, how God gave joy in suffering. Here was someone who was suffering immensely and yet would come around the assembly and be so happy and be so joyful. How can that be? But the power of God working in them. And they saw that and experienced it and they tasted. They tasted transformed lives of sinners. Those who were, who were sinful and had a reputation for that, God changed them and transformed them and brought them into the body of Christ. They tasted of good marriages that God was building. They tasted of righteous children. They tasted of wise people who were so saturated with the Bible that what comes out of their mouth was wisdom like a bubbling brook. They tasted of God's love abounds in the brethren. They tasted of what it was like to see people give their lives for others in a way that's totally unexplainable, that's apart from the power of God. Why would you do that? Why would you sacrifice your Saturday to go and help this person? Why would you spend your whole evening with these people? Why would you help them in this way? They said, only because God has helped me and been gracious to me. I want to pour it out in love to others. They tasted those things. They tasted humility among His people. They, they tasted patience when wronged. Maybe they sinned against people and were all scared that they might bite back at them and talk to them and people were understanding and forgiving and gracious and kind. They tasted of what it meant that God gives strength to forgive and many other things that work out in the church all the time. They tasted it all. They were close. But people can be non-believing and taste the powers of God easily when mixing close to the people of God. 
And finally, the sixth thing that's true of them is that they've fallen away. They've fallen away. They've left the church, no longer interested in the things of God. They left Jesus behind, turned hostile against Him. Oh, they may have been excited for some time. They may have seen the benefits in their own lives, but ultimately they left the community, turned their back on God. Maybe they were turned back to their sin. As is most likely the case for these Hebrew readers, they're turning back not necessarily to their sin, but to the uh, Old Testament ways, the priests and the sacrifice and the feasts and festivals, which in many ways is sin because it's, it's a blasphemy against God, thinking that the sacrifices, which are impossible to remove sins, take away sins, Hebrews 10.4, are what's going to help them. I don't believe they've fallen away from salvation. In fact, you can even see that here again in verse 6. What he is, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. I think it's significant. He didn't say it's impossible to renew them again to salvation. I believe they never had it. They experienced it. They were close, but they never arrived. At this point, before we go on, I I do want to comment on one thing. Those who triumph these verses and say, hey, look, God, we can lose our salvation, are always quick to say, hey, come back and regain your salvation. And if you lose again, right, come back. But these verses teach that once lost, always lost is what they teach if they teach anything. You can't come back. If you believe that these verses mean you can lose your salvation, once you've lost it, once you're done. And they have difficulty then explaining about those who come back, come this way and that. Because you can't come back is the point of this. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. But notice even there was a repentance there. There was a turning from something to come in here. It's probably turning from the Jewish ways to come in, then they turned back, and then they were done. There's the warning. Let's look, secondly, at the illustration. The illustration, verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it's also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. All right, picture with me a field. Seeds have been planted. Perfect for plant life. The soil is fertile. Plenty of sunlight. Temperatures have been good. Humidity is in the air. Rain has come in abundance. Workers have been out fertilizing and cultivating the field. And when the harvest comes, boom, these plants sprout up. There's plenty of food, plenty of fruit to go around. And there's much joy because the harvest is brought in and the planting has been successful. That's what verse 7 says. Now verse 8, the opposite. Picture another field or the same field or whatever. Same conditions. The field right next to it perhaps would be good. Same conditions. The soil is fertile. Seeds have been sown, plenty of sunlight, plenty of heat, plenty of humidity, rain in abundance, workers have been coming in, fertilizing and cultivating the ground, and when the harvest comes, the workers are disappointed because all you see is thorns and thistles. It's all this ground is producing. In this case, there's little joy because all their labors are gone for nothing. And that's the illustration that's used to explain verses 6 and 7. There are those who are like the good soil. And the good things of God come to them, like the Gospel. And they've been enlightened with that. And they've tasted the heavenly gift. And they have shared in the Holy Spirit and the the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And they take these things and embrace them and, and go further and believe in Jesus and bear forth great fruit. And then there are others who hear the Gospel, are enlightened. They taste the heavenly gift. They 
They share the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the powers of God. and They enjoy it for a season, but eventually they reject it all. They, they turn their back on the Gospel. They, they don't believe in the Gospel. They don't trust in Jesus. They don't have a love for Christ and a love for His people and a love for His Word. They don't have any fruit from their life, which is the Spirit of God working in them. They don't have joy. They, see, they don't see their sin decreasing. They don't have holy passions developing in their heart. Where they've turned, there's no regard for the Spirit. The Word of God has begun to bore them. The power has not convinced them. And the tragic end of these people is, is that they are close to being cursed. And they end up being burned. It means that they're not turned again to repentance. They're just, they're just waiting. It's the, it's the stalks that have been taken up, the, the weeds that you gather up and put there, wait for them to dry out a little bit, and then you dump them in to be burned all up. They're not coming back. Weeds that have been pulled, a thistle, you don't bring it back. You just leave it out there. And I, think this, I think this is describing people 4 through 6. They're weeds, thorns, thistles. And they're just set aside waiting for the judgment. Now you can't help to think about the, how parallel this is to the parable that Jesus told about the sower, right? Maybe that was in your mind. You're like, oh, this sounds familiar. I think it's familiar because he took it from Jesus. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell alongside the road. The birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. When the sun had arisen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. He who his ears let him hear. The parable of Jesus said there were four soils which represent four souls. There's the hard soul that doesn't hear the word, just bounces off. There's the rocky soul which hears it and gladly sprouts up for a while, shows life, and then has no root when the tribulations come. There's a third soil which is um, not able to sustain the plants either because it grows up. And then the weeds come up and choke it out. And finally, there is the last soil, which of the four soils, there's one good soil and three bad soils. And the three bad soils, the differentiation is that they don't bring forth fruit. There is life there. There is genuine life there. And I think that's what chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, there is some life there. There is something growing. There is something they're tasting. There's something, but in the end, really, there's no fruit. It's more just consuming of the blessings of the ground. And I do believe that's exactly parallel with the illustration here in Hebrews 6. Plants growing up, only one bears fruit, the other bears forth no fruit. And that one is bad, and this one is good. And these people grew, verses 4 through 6, but they bore no fruit. See, it's the fruit that gives their evidence of salvation. And that's what we see even in verses 9 through 12. We'll just look at them quickly. Verses 9 through 12, he's going to speak about I say. He's becoming pastoral at this moment. This is um, why I wanted to end here, because he's giving assurance. Because you might be thinking here today, there are people who hear passages like Hebrews chapter 6 and fall into deep depression, thinking that, oh, this, is, this has happened to me. Woe is me. This is where I am. There's no room any longer for repentance. I've committed the unpardonable sin. I can't be brought back. And I just say this. If you ever think that way, it's probably an indication that this is not you. Because these people just turn their back, don't give any more thought about it, don't ever 
plead and go on. They just, they just continue on their way. Probably shows you have a sensitive heart in these things. But hear the word. Hear the heart of the writer. He says this, But, beloved, just to contrast, this is what's happening to them, those. Now once again, the pronoun is going to change to us again. These are those. This is us. He says, We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. Surely he was talking in a hard way, talking about the perils of falling away, but now he seeks to give assurance to his readers. Listen, we are speaking of tragic realities, but we don't see these things in you. And I just say that's true of me as well. Is that for the vast majority of you all, I don't see these things in you. There are some things that people I'm worried about told me they don't believe or in here in our congregation, sure. But for you all, I'm convinced of better things. God is not unjust, verse 10 says. He's not unjust, meaning that God is going to be fair in these things. You might think, hey, that is totally unfair that God would cast these people away and give them no opportunity for repentance. But says, no, no, God is not unjust. And He's not unjust towards you. He's not going to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Listen, God sees what you all do. He has seen the way that you have loved God in ways that, you know, one of the things that thrills me as a pastor is when I hear of people loving on others totally apart from me. That like thrills my soul. Like, you know what, that's just showing their love for God and it's not, it's not for show or anything. It's just because they have a relationship which I'm not really involved in that relationship. It's wonderful. That's where the church can go beyond me. And God has seen the way that you have loved others. He's seen the way that you have loved the brethren and He knows how you have ministered to them greatly. God knows of, of how when some of you were in help, others gave help needed. And, and God knows that when food pantries were low, when you brought the bag of groceries and gave it to the people. God knows when others needed a place to stay that you gladly took them in. And God knows that when they needed transportation, you gladly gave them a ride. And God knows that when there was financial need, you gladly helped them out. And God knows that you pray for them. And God knows that you rejoice with them. And God knows that you prayed with them and that you read the Word of God with them and you encouraged their souls together. God knows all of that. And that's what verse 10 says. He's not going to forget that. He has seen the way you've ministered. He's seen the way that you still are ministering to the saints. And I just say this, this is true ministry, is serving one another. Too often churches can be involved in so much hype and so many activities and so many programs and people can get caught into thinking that service of the church is going and attending some services. Well, that's good and it's helpful. It's what energizes you, but fundamentally true ministry isn't going to some event. True ministry is serving others in their need, which can only take place with relationships come as you know the need and you do it. Well, do you have this sort of fruit in your life? Can you think of ways in which you've done this? Where there, there's been a need and you've gone to meet that need? There's been something to give, to help, and you have given help of your time, your talents, your treasures? Well, if these things are taking place in the life of, pe- of these people, the writer gives them assurance that no, you're different than those who fell away. Because the implication is that those who fell away weren't like this. There are people who come to church who are just consumers, just say, well, give me, give me, give me, give me, and oh, this is wonderful. Look at all these good things I get here in this church. All these wonderful people, they just love me, and I don't need to do anything. 
they're like those of four through six who taste the kindness of God and, and God's not working in them so as to turn around and give it to others. But the assurance that comes is not also a license to sit back in the chair and say, Phew, I made it. I'm in. Lemonade for the rest of my life. I'm here. Woohoo! No, because the Christian life is not like that. The Christian life is a fight. Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. When he describes his faith and belief in Jesus, his life, he calls it a fight. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. When you think about what it means to live a Christian life, think about it as a boxing match. Paul says, I buffet my body daily. I'm fighting. What are you fighting for? You're fighting to believe. You're fighting to trust. You're fighting to see God work in you and you are desiring. It's verse 11. You're seeking a diligence. And the writer says this, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And here's what he's calling. He's saying this, okay, I believe you're in because I see the fruits in your life, but I desire that you be diligent and that you not be sluggish. Don't just sit back and rest on your laurels. That's not the path of Christianity. Rather, there's a diligence, a diligent pursuit of God, a diligent pursuit of our hope. We are like the Olympic athlete who has a gold medal in their mind. You know, in watching the Olympics... I didn't see the story fully, but there was some kind of, maybe you guys know, maybe you can help me out, some kind of speed skater or skier maybe who, when she was like eight years old, drew a picture of herself skiing. Is that, is that right? I, who is it? Julio Macuso? Close enough? Whatever. Anyway, I just saw the kind of illusion of this, didn't see enough of it, but, but she had this vision and this dream. Did she get the gold? She did? In Torino, she did. Okay. So she got the gold, but she had this vision that was a long hope. And I'm sure that in the days of practice, when things were getting really hard, she looked at that picture that she drew and she said, that's what I'm going for. I'm going to remind myself of that goal. And the Christian life is the same. We set our hope before us every day. And and we remind ourselves of our hope. I have a hope in Jesus. I'm going to diligently pursue that hope. I'm going to work hard to remember that hope. So in tough times, I can remember that there is something at the end. That that's what I'm pursuing. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, after this whole treatise about how he's not justified by his works, how, how it's nothing that he does, how he's, he's, he's justified not by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, then he continues on and says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm pressing on that I might know Him. There's no sluggishness in Paul and there's no sluggishness for us in our Christian life as it says in verse 12. But rather, we're to have faith and patience. We're to imitate those who have faith and patience. And by the way, the rest of Hebrews, particularly chapter 11, speaks about those who we should imitate in their faith. And the rest of chapter 6 speaks all about people, particularly Abraham, with patience to inherit the promises. And that's who we are before God. We are patiently waiting for the promises of God, which seem sometimes so far off. But I'm telling you, church family, they are so near. You just wait patiently for the Lord. And put before us, 
I want to put before you the hope that we have. It is appropriate we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Because that is the hope that we have, the cross of Christ. As we celebrate the Supper again this morning, we can just even think here about the the hope we have and hope that as we, we celebrate this morning that you focus your hope upon that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, right? We're, we're proclaiming that that's where our hope. And, and Jesus, when He said, eat the bread and drink the cup, He said, do this in remembrance of Me. It's something that we're remembering. We're remembering our goal that is set before us. And so as you prepare your hearts to celebrate the supper, well, we've done this. We're just going to take bread. We're going to take cup. We're going to drink it. But, but it's all focusing upon our hearts to remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Remember, that's our hope, and that's our goal, and that's how you'll sustain not falling away, is to put that diligently before you. So let's pray this morning. Lord, even as the writer here said, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Oh God, I would pray for this flock of people as well that we all would be diligent, that we would realize the full assurance of hope that we have, that we would not be doubtful that we are in verses 4 through 6 because we've seen you work through us and we've trusted your promises and we're patiently waiting for that. We are imitating those in that way. So give us a diligence, God, which will encourage us in those ways. As you don't permit the repentance of those who have spurned you in such a high-handed way, I pray that you would permit us in this path. Thank you for the promises of Scripture that, um, that tell us of how you will keep us until the end. You will protect us and guide us and guard us. You've given the Holy Spirit to us as a pledge, as a guarantee of our eternal salvation. And so may we rest and trust and believe in those things. I just even want to encourage you now to examine your hearts, examine your minds, examine the fruit in your life, examine your own diligence, confess any sin before the Lord, but I encourage you to confess that sin and turn from it and realize that in Christ Jesus is where our hope is found. And so celebrate the supper this morning, realizing that it's in in Him and the cross alone that we're made right. Forsake your works again. However you've drifted. If you've drifted into trusting those things, come back. If you've drifted into laziness, come back and plead the Lord to give you a diligence so you won't be sluggish. And God, I pray that you'd meet with us now. Be with us. You said, this is my body and this is my blood. Certainly it doesn't mean, O Lord, that this is your physical blood, but it does mean that you are with us. And I pray that you'd commune with us now in a special way to press us on to pursue Jesus that we might not fall away. We love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.